Would you turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verse 2? Romans chapter 12, verse 2. <clears throat> G.K. Chesterton had this to say. He said the object of a new year, new, new, new year, is not that we should have a new year, but it is that we should have a new soul, a new nose, a new feet, a new backbone, new ears, and new eyes. And unless a man starts afresh about things, he will certainly not do anything effective. So Romans chapter 12, verse 2, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind and by testing that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Father, we pray that you would bless this time, control my words, may it be your words, just as you have said, it's sharper than a two-edged sword. We pray that it will speak to us and that we will live lives that you've called us to. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name, amen. This is my desire for us as a community of faith that uh, we be not conformed to the world, but be transformed. But the question I had to ask myself is, how do I live this? How do I make this incarnationally true? How do I go about on a daily basis? So what I want to do is answer three questions. And as we do that, hopefully we'd be able to uh, make this real for ourselves. So why does our mind need renewing? And how does renewal look like? And how can mind be renewed? And in trying to do that, I want to spend some time looking at the words that are there, words like mind and renew and transformed. And we pray that at the end of it, we be able to uh, say, this is what is, this is God's word, and this is what I want to live uh, uh, in the days that God gives me. So what's the mind? What's the mind? Now, I want us to say that mind is more than the brain. You know, it's not just the brain because uh, we think that mind and the brain are the same. Then it took him 732 million calculations to be able to catch that ball. But our mind is more than that. It's not just a supercomputer. It's not just a data collecting center or a data analyzing center. Our mind is more than that. You see, a mind is, now if you were to say, somebody were to say, he, he's got a mind of his own, we're not saying that, you know, rest of us have rented our brains. The rest of us don't have a brain. We are saying that it's his attitude, his personality. It's about him. And so when we say mind, it's more than that. I want us to understand that. The Bible also acknowledges Paul, when writing to the Philippians, he speaks about the mind of Christ. He says, let this mind be anew that was in Christ Jesus. Talking about his attitude, his mindset, his, the way he approached things, and that, that would be what we would have. 
You see, there is an expression in the, uh, in the Bible. In, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, it says, Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The spirit of your mind. It seems like the mind, uh, there is this attitude, this purpose of will, this belief system, the way we do things. And so I'm still thinking about how do I make this tangible? How do I make this real for us? And so at the risk of simplifying or oversimplifying, what I want us to do is I want us to uh, look at ourselves as a car, compare ourselves to a car, okay? Now, the car has got a body. Now, that body is our body. It comes in different sizes, it comes in different shapes, it comes in different shines, but I don't want to talk about the body uh, today. It's not my focus. But I want us to talk about the seat of emotion, the driver, the heart. You see, uh, there's a question that they ask, uh, what part of the car causes the most accident? And the answer is... The nut behind the wheel. It's the driver. The driver is important because it's the seat of emotions. It's the one that makes the well-being and the functioning of the person. You see, in Proverbs chapter 4.23, it says, Above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. So this driver is important. But not just the driver, not just the heart. You see, this driver cannot do anything with this car unless under the bonnet there's an engine. All right? And so that engine is the mind. I want us to think about the engine as the mind. And that's the focus. Now, the reason you may ask, why is the engine the mind? Because uh, think about ourselves, all right? Hear me carefully. What we know in our minds to be true forms a conviction in our hearts, and that conviction translates into action. I'll say that again. This mind, this engine, what it holds to be true, what, you know, the power, that engine that it has is the only thing that this driver can use, the heart, and that, when it connects, it what forms into an action. So what you've got in your mind is important. The lesson behind this whole illustration is that, I want you to understand, that what this mind has accepted as true has to be right. What you put into this mind, if you put the wrong thing, you get the wrong action. If you put the right things, you can expect a right answer. So, so this... Uh, there's another reason I was thinking about why this mind would be an engine, because, you know, the engine is measured in what? Oh, okay, I'd say horsepower, all right? The horsepower, it talks about the power, it talks about the strength, you see? Uh, that's where it, we get the word, the horse sense. The horse sense is the ability to make the right decisions, and yet sometimes, sadly, this mind might be measured in mule power because of its stubbornness or in donkey power because of its stupidity or whatever. You see, this mind is so powerful. I want, you, I want us to understand, and I, 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 I need you to understand that this mind, what we fill this mind, 
is what is important. And that's the reason why Paul is saying renewal of your mind. The renewal of your mind. And this mind, there's a battle that's been fought. There's a battle that's been fought for who owns that mind. Barnhouse, in his book, The Invisible War, he quotes this and he says, it's the battle for your mind. And that battle is vicious. It is intense. It's unrelenting. And it's unfair because Satan is unfair. And the reason why it is so intense is that your greatest asset is your mind. We uh, look at Second Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4 and 5. We see that there is the battle that's been fought. And so Paul writes to the Corinthians, he said, bring every captive, uh, bring every thought captive to obey Christ. You see, this, this engine. But not just the engine. I want you to think about the fuel. Engine is no good if it's not filled. The fuel, we're talking about that, what goes in, right? The fuel. Now, the fuel is the set of values that drives the engine, what we call the worldview, the morals, the ethics, the way of thinking. What goes into that mind drives it. I think about people whose lives are, you know, they spend quite a bit of their lives looking at movies or watching movies or playing video games or, you know, are caught up in the pop culture. Look at the way they, uh, they, they walk, they, they talk, they dress, you know, pants on the floor or whatever it's called. You see, what's happening is that worldview, this set of values that has gone into the mind has impacted the heart and that heart is driving that action. And, and so Proverbs fifteen fourteen says, A wise person is hungry for knowledge, while a fool feeds on trash. Fool feeds on trash. What goes into this mind, into the engine, is important. Now let's take this a little further. So if the fuel is important, we ask about the fueling station, the gas station. We need to know where the gas station is. You see, when it comes to our cars, you know, our car, our car that you parked, we're very careful. We, we don't go to these independent mom-and-pop uh, gas stations because we are concerned about the quality of the fuel. We're concerned that it will damage the engine. And I ask you, and I ask myself, how much more than the life, how much more than what goes into your mind that drives your life that we need to be careful? The fueling station. And, and, and so, um, so we have the driver, we have the engine, we have the fuel, we have the fueling station, but I want to give you one more. And I, it's the dashboard, the one with the flashing lights, what we call the conscience. In Romans chapter 2, verse 15, we, say, we see that God wrote his law on our hearts. Now, that conscience that we have, the alarm lights go off when the value system is breached. When the worldview held by this person is broken, when the fuel that it's calibrated for is not the fuel that's put in. Hear me, hear me, okay? Now, this mind gets used to something that 
it, it, run, it runs on. And then you bring something else, the blinking lights go off. There's something wrong with the fuel that's been put in. There's something wrong with that worldview. And, and that's the dashboard. Now, in a perfect world, this would have worked well, you see, because this is God-designed. This conscious is God-designed. But what happens is, because of the fall, the intricate design has got affected. Let me give you two examples. Now, I want you to consider the mind. I want you to think about those on the outside who don't have Christ. Romans 1.28 says their mind is depraved. But wait, hold on. You see what happens is when, when Christ is talking to Peter and says, who do, who, do, who do you say I am? And, he, and Peter gives this wonderful uh, uh, explanation of who Christ is. But immediately after that, Christ had to tell, the Lord Jesus Christ had to tell Peter, you're Satan, get thee behind me. And then he says in 1623, he says, you do not have the mind that concerns uh, that has the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. The Bible is stating this. You see, this mind apart from Christ is dysfunctional. But those of us who are in Christ, we're not there fully yet. It needs to be renewed daily. It's something needs to happen on a daily basis. It's not a once for all. This mind has to be renewed Dahlia. Consider the conscience. Right? You got the mind. I want you to think about the conscience. You see, this alarm system that goes off when things uh, are not right. But the catch is this, that this conscience has got damaged. It's only as good as the moral standard that informs it. First Timothy chapter 4 verse 2 says the conscience is seared. So if you, if you think this conscience that is telling you the right from the wrong, I want you to check to see whether it is of itself or, it's, or if, it's, if it's feeding in through the right fuel. And so I ask, what is the solution? What, what, what's, how, do I, how do I resolve this? What's the solution? Now, when something's wrong with a car, where do you go? You go to the dealership. Or something is wrong with our lives, I want us to think that we have to go back to the designer. In this case, our Savior too, our Lord Jesus Christ. And what, that's the first thing you need to do. And what he gives among others, he gives us a new heart, a new driver. He gives us a renewed mind. He gives us fresh fuel. And he gives us the privilege to fuel at the best filling station. I hope you get the picture of how mind is and why it's important that this mind is is fueled right and so why Paul is saying be not conformed but be renewed let's look at the second word renewal renewal now the Greek word for that is anakinosis now I know that didn't make anything any difference to you, but I just wanted to speak in tongues, so I got it out there, all right? So, but the, the thing about this is it's a makeover. It's a complete change. That's what repentance is all about. It happens in salvation, doesn't it? You see, you, you, you have this, this thing, and you're heading towards, and you turn around. That's repentance. You turn around. 
you have repentance and salvation, but you have renewal and sanctification. What's happening is not just I turn around, but I continuously walk away. I walk away from the passions that once called me and held me. Turn away, walk away. That is the renewal that Paul is talking to us about. And what uh, interests me is that word renewal is used one other time, and that's in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. It says, God saved us not according to our own works of righteousness, but according to his mercy, his own mercy, by the washing of the regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. It's the work of the Holy Spirit that renews our mind. And I'm so thankful that it's not something that I have to do. But then I ask myself, why is Paul asking me then to renew my mind? I mean, this seems like an imperative. It's like a command. What is Paul trying to do? And Paul's imperative, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. I like the way J.B. Phillips puts chapter 12, verse 2. He says, the world is seeking to squeeze you into its own mold. The world is trying to squeeze you into its own mold. The world is the world system, the way it is, the world system. Then you have the mold, which is the worldview. It is the way it conducts its business. It's the way it goes about doing its life, the values that it holds dear, the ethics by which it conducts itself. That's the mold, and it's trying to squeeze you and make you think like it does. It wants to conform you. It wants to squeeze you. It wants to make you a clone of what the world is. To squeeze you. I, 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 I think about us as Christians sometimes. What parts of our lives have been squeezed into this mold? There were things growing up, I remember, we wouldn't, it would be a shame even to talk about, but now we're okay. We think it is because oh, we've changed, culture has changed, or we think it is, you know, there's a generational difference, and whatever it might be, but I want you to understand if it's a biblical principle, this is the basis on which we live our lives, and we will not be squeezed into the world's mold. World's biblical principles never become archaic. But the truth of the matter is what feeds you is what fuels you. What feeds you is what fuels you. And so the worldview we espouse will decide, will help, will you know, in some mysterious way, as the Holy Spirit does his renewal work, we will see that that is the, the basis on which a transformation happens. I'm going to give you the example of Daniel. I've been reading the book of Daniel. That was, that was where I was this last week. And, and, the, and the life of Daniel just gripped my heart. And I, I hope I can bring some 
uh, lessons through that and explain where we are today. Daniel chapter 1, verse 1 and 2 says this, And the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now, if you read through the book of Judah, uh, sorry, Daniel, I want us to, uh, you, you will realize this, 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 uh, this life of Daniel that just grips you. What I want to do very quickly is I want to contrast the worldview that was held by Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, and that of Daniel, what Daniel thought. Now, now Jehoiakim, in Second Kings chapter 23 and 34, we see that he is now placed as a puppet king by Pharaoh Necho. And then in 36, it tells us that he reigns 11 years. The last three of those years, he reigns under Nebuchadnezzar. And in 24 verse 1, and that's where the narrative of Daniel begins, because at the end of the third year, under Nebuchadnezzar, he revolts and and Daniel begins there. Daniel chapter 1 verse 1 begins there to say that at the end of that, they are taken exile. So Daniel is now taken as an exile to Babylon. Now, Jeremiah has been prophesying. He has been prophesying for the past 23 years. He's been talking about the fall of, of Jerusalem and about Judah and how they're going to go into exile. But this king rejects. God's word. He's the one who, as he hears the scroll of Jeremiah, keeps cutting it and burning it. He rejects it. He didn't want to hear God's word. And I really asked myself, what is this king smoking? You know, like, what, I mean, like, really, you've got the prophet here speaking to you. He's the one who's telling you, listen, you, you know, you need, to, uh, you need to understand that exile is coming. Jehoiakim is the king who kills Uriah the prophet. Now, there's another Uriah, not the same from uh, David's time. He would be very old if he's still alive, if he didn't die in the battleground, that is. But uh, this is Uriah the prophet. Uriah the prophet, the same thing. He has the same message as, as uh, uh, Jeremiah. And then he had to run for his life to Egypt. And from there, Jehoiakim sends his people, brings him back so that he is killed. And uh, in chapter 26 of Jeremiah, we see Jeremiah is also in the court uh, being tried so that he can be put to death. And thankfully, because God is in control, he's not put to death. But they ask him, why have you prophesied in the name of the Lord, saying the house shall be like Shiloh and this city shall be desolate without inhabitant? You see, the worldview that the king the false prophets and the priest and the people held was this. You see, they, they, um, the worldview, it, it prevented them from listening to God's word. You see, the, the, uh, they, they had thought that God's honor is so caught up in the uh, continuity of Judah and of Jerusalem, that they fail to see that king, that, that the Lord is, uh, is a holy God. And he will keep his name honored through, but he will not 
allow for his name to be desecrated. And because they had this wrong worldview, they missed out. I asked myself, like, how is our dashboard calibrated? Like, is it calibrated to hear the sound that we want to hear? Do our, light, do our dashboards light up for the wrong reasons? It's because of opinions and, and worldview and morality or whatever we've held true. And anything that goes against it is what we light up, but not to do with the Bible. And so my prayer is sensitivity. Sensitivity, that we will understand that the worldview we espouse is biblical. Not cultural, not because I think this is what the Bible is saying, but, but, but because I know this is what the Bible is saying, because I've studied it, I've spent time, and that we will fill our minds with nothing else except God's word. No other fuel except God's word. And Jehoiakim is rejected because he rejected God's word. And we read in, in Jeremiah chapter 22, verse 18, where there's a prophecy of how he would die. A wrong worldview. But then Daniel's worldview. Here, you know, as you read through this, this becomes very apparent. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 4, he says that he is young, he is good-looking, he is intelligent, and is of a royal family or of nobility. And then later we will see that he is also godly. Now, that's a great combination. That's like the, uh, the, uh, what, the brains and the beauty and everything coming together, like Daniel's got it all. And I think... That as part of his nobility, as part of being in the royal family or nobility, that he would have heard or even seen how Jeremiah prophesied and how he was treated. He, he, he would have seen that because, you know, Jeremiah was really put through trying times. When we get to Daniel chapter 9, verse 2, we see that he had regard for Jeremiah. He, in fact, starts to study about Jeremiah. He recognizes that Jeremiah is the prophet from God. But now consider that he's had this, all this experience, the negatives of, of within the royalty, the, the cushiness of living as royalty or nobility. And now he's in Babylon. He's in exile. And he's among the few chosen to be in the palace. Well, I don't know how many of you are going to get excited if you get an opportunity to go to the Buckingham Palace and live there. Well, I just want to go see. But not that, you know, something like that. Daniel's getting a second chance. Daniel may have lost everything. We don't know about his parents and his siblings. I don't know if they were killed or they left behind or they brought in exile. We have no idea. Uh, so this is like a survival, a survival island. Daniel gets to be, uh, Daniel is chosen. In this case, there are not just one survivor, but many, few, not many, quite a few, uh, some, sorry. But then it comes at a cost. He had to squeeze in. He had to fit in the mold. You see, his choices, 
whether he would have the comfort of the palace or he would have the hard labor on the field or even death because he disobeyed the king's order. And as a young man, maybe in his teens. So I asked myself, what would I do if I were Daniel? What, what would I do if I were Daniel in that context? What would you do if you were Daniel? Do we recognize that the circumstances are so uh, precarious? We make good decisions when there's no challenge. Place yourself. What Daniel is, and we read in Daniel chapter 1, verse 8, but Daniel made up his mind. I like the way NLT puts it. He made up his mind that he would not defile himself with king's choice food or with the wine which he drank, so he sought permission from the commander that he may not defile himself. Daniel, he made up his mind that he will not defile himself. It's a resolve to nonconformity. It's, a, it's to say, I will not conform to what this world will shape me into. Not just that I will not defile, not just that I will not put any other fuel into my mind apart from God's word, but that I will not defile myself with the things of the world. I'll give an example. I think it was yesterday or day before. Um, some of you know we, we are going away. But Joyce did not get her day off for Wednesday. She was hoping to just get a personal day off and, and go. But what happened is, uh, that was all right. I'm mean, taking a personal day is all right. But what happened is she got scheduled for a special meeting on that Wednesday. And the only way you can get out of that is if you have a doctor's appointment. Now, that's an easy thing, right, to get a doctor's appointment, even though nothing wrong with you. You can just say, I've got a doctor's appointment. That was the easy way out. But I've been studying Daniel. How do I study Daniel but not being squeezed into the mold and say I can take the easy way out? So we prayed and we said, Lord, we don't know what the options are, but we, we will call in and ask. And God honored. I mean, it was so thankful that we would take an opportunity, even in that little thing. It didn't hurt anybody. Nobody would know, I mean, except between God and I, and I can just say, I'm sorry, Lord, you know that. We are so easy on ourselves and take this forgiveness that we need from God very lightly. Daniel. But I want you to fast forward into... You know, two other kings that he served under. He's been 50 years, at least 50 years at this point. And the world has still not squeezed him into its mold. So he's under Belshazzar. Remember the time Belshazzar is ordered for the vessels to be brought out of, out of that temple which belonged to the temple in Jerusalem and they were drinking out of it and there was this handwriting on the wall that comes up and, and it says, says the color of his face changed, his knees started knocking and when that happened the queen mother had to come in and introduce to him Daniel. That stopped me because you see, now Daniel has been in the palace, he's, you know, he's proven himself, it would be so easy to keep himself politically you know, in the right place so that he can continue on in that great office. But Belshazzar doesn't even know about Daniel. 
And and so when Belshazzar says that if you can tell me what's up on the wall, I will give you the title of the third ruler. Our history would tell us that uh, Belshazzar's father was ruling, he was a second ruler, and now Daniel would be the third ruler. And that's the idea of this third ruler. But what does Daniel say? He says in chapter 5, verse 17 of Daniel, keep your gifts and rewards, O king. In that one sentence, we understand the motivation. What is it that drives Daniel? And then he keep going to Darius. Now, I want you to understand that you know, he did not serve under Belshazzar, not because of his age, because with the next king that's coming up, he is serving in his office. And what Darius wants to do is he has set up 120 officials. He's put three presidents on top. And now he wants to take Daniel and place him above the others. And so they start to have this you know, committee meeting, like, what do we do? Let's come up with some ideas to how to get Daniel down. And it says there that we can do nothing except in chapter 6, verse 5, nothing except concerning the law of his God. Well, I think about, you know, to, to find that there's no other fault except in the way he worships. And so they come up with a scheme of worship no other except the king. And so what does Daniel do? His response in chapter 6, verse 10, Daniel got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he has done, as he had done previously. Just as he had done, he continues to do. And so they're excited. They run to the king and they, they, they talk to him and and they trap him. Uh, notice what, what they say about Daniel. They call him one of the exiles from Judah. It's been 50 years since Daniel has been in this place in, in Babylon. 50 years, but yet he's called one of the exiles of Judah. He's not one of them. It's like the N-word in Babylon. He's not one of them. And I think about what would some of his friends have said. Hey, uh, Daniel, what are you trying to do? Why are you trying to put us in trouble? Can, can you not just shut the window and pray? Can you not just pray at your desk? You're praying. God understands. And don't think that you're the only one who is praying. We all pray, but we don't make a big thing about it. But Daniel was not driven but the world's viewpoint. It must have been definitely lonely, but certainly it was life-threatening and life-challenging. But Daniel's nonconformity does not end there. You see, I, I told you that he was reading the prophecies of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 2, this is what it reads. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that according to the word of the Lord, to Jeremiah the prophet, my, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. He's been reading the book of Jeremiah, the very 
prophet who was mocked and harassed and, and put into the, the well without the water, he is now reading it, and he recognizes that 70 years, that time that he has said has passed. And so he starts to, what does he do in verse, nine, verse 3? Then I turn my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. What Daniel does is that he acts on the book. He has read the book, and he says, oh, great, I got it now. All right, I need to go back to my work. He doesn't do that. He acts on the book. We'll fuel ourselves with nothing other except the word of God. We will not defile ourselves with the world, which is the avoiding of the negative, but also willing to act on what is right. Not just avoiding, but the acting. You see, the end of his life, Daniel's testimony was that his war for his mind, his whole self, was not lost to the world. Not conformed, but renewed in the mind. So I ask myself, pray for myself. Pray for this community. How is it that we can, we would be non-conformed to the world? How is it that we would be transformed? Lord, I want to, we want to be transformed. Lord, lead us in that journey through the renewal of the mind. In Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, I just love this verse, the way it says, but we all with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And it continues to say, and this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. The Lord does the transformation, but we do the beholding. Hear me out. The more we look to Christ, the more we look like Christ. The more we look to Christ, the more we look like Christ. Mark Buchanan, he wrote a book, Your God is Too Small. It's a great read. Because we've made our God into a teddy bear, fluffy, soft, cuddly, softly and tenderly, forgetting that he's a mighty God, a holy God, and that his word, that he will protect his glory, he will not share his glory with anyone else. We are called to be holy like he is, to be transformed from one image to the other, as we behold him, that we will be like him. This is my prayer for all of us, dear brothers and sisters, that this transformation that we read in chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewal of your mind. And I see that this is the will of God, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, that this is the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God, that I'd be transformed to the image of his Son, and not conformed to the fading glory 
of this world. Would you just rise with me as I pray for us? May my words be few, Lord. May nothing that we are or said take any space that in our thoughts, in our actions, in our words, in everything, there would be that transformation this year and the years to come till we are around the throne. We recognize, Lord, that uh, the pull is so strong. We recognize, Lord, that even though we try, we often fail. But we are reminded that the renewal is from the Holy Spirit. It's the Lord himself who does the transformation. And so we are rest assured. We thank you that you're giving us, Lord, this encouragement to stay away, to put away, to cast off, to, to, to say no. I want to say no. We'll say no to the things of this world and walk away, not stick close to the wall, but walk away. And that on a daily basis, we'd be, we can see the renewal of the transformation of our lives as, as our mind itself is renewed. That by the end of this year, and, um, and, the one, and the days that you give us, Lord, that we have become more like your son each day that each day is sweeter than the day before because of what you uh, are doing in our lives and what you've done in our lives. We thank you for this community. We pray for this community, Lord. We pray that we will grow, grow to be that shining testimony, just like Daniel, who, who was only accused for his worship, we pray that that will be our accusation, that the world will accuse us for our worship and nothing else. Because we know that as, as we come, as we worship, Lord, for your glory, as we bring you glory, as you're glorified in our lives, as you dwell in the praises of your people, as we behold him, as we look at him, we will be like him. And that is our joy, our hope, our confidence. So we thank you for all that you mean to us. In Jesus Christ, our Lord's name, amen. Please be seated.